Welcome to episode 107 of the Fertility Podcast. Now, this is coming to you at the end of National Fertility Awareness Week in the UK. So that's kind of early November 2017. And I'm very aware that this sounds very UK focused when this podcast is heard all over the world. But I know that there's a number of Fertility Awareness Weeks. And I don't know how you felt where you are about how discussions about fertility have been picked up in the mainstream media but something seems this year to have changed a bit it feels like much more attention was put on not scaremongering but informative discussions from funding in the UK to male fertility issues and I really hope that we're starting to see a bit of a shift in the way that society understands infertility and what you're going to hear next is a chat I've had with another Twitter friend, Jessica Jones, who got in touch with me asking actually whether I'd spoken at all about dealing with cystic fibrosis and infertility. And she will explain what her and her husband are currently going through. So have a listen. For us, it really starts when we got married in 2012. We got married quite late in life. My husband was 37 and I was 34. We don't have children from any previous relationship. So we just thought um, we got married. We expected really to be um, pregnant by the following spring because that's how easy it is. Not. So a year later, we'd, um, we'd been trying and I was fairly sure there was something wrong. I was quite sure that my timings were right and it just wasn't happening. So we started talking about going to the doctors and then it was Christmas 2013 and we lost my father-in-law really suddenly following a routine operation in the hospital. And it was really unexpected, complete shock. And it, that was really difficult. A couple of months after that, we started going to the doctors and they did some tests and started looking at what could be the problem for us. Um, and then six months after we lost my father-in-law, my brother was killed in a car accident. Um, he was 33 and a foreign driver was on the wrong side of the road and smashed headfirst into him. And that was and still is the most horrendous and devastating thing that I've ever been through. My brother and I were really close. We were like best friends and just to receive that phone call at half past two in the morning to say that he'd been killed was was just the worst thing that has ever happened to me. So bereavement, uh, first of all, was, has come mm-hmm. into your world with, you said, your father-in-law. And then, mm-hmm. as you've just explained, a massive hit again. And, and all at this time, this other stress going on that you're, yeah. you're trying to start a family. So at that point, when something so tragic happens... I'm assuming that your focus wasn't on what was going on with no, yourself. Yeah, not at all. It wasn't. The, the really weird thing was that we had had some tests done at the doctors and we didn't really need to do anything else. We were waiting for results. So I wasn't really thinking about the fertility side of my life at all I was just you know trying to work out how to get from one day to the next really we were kind of left with my brother's business which is Fingerprints Deli Cafe in Leicester we chose to keep running that so there was lots of things going on and it was literally six weeks after his accident that the doctors phoned us at home and told us that we would um, never ever be able to have children naturally it was physically impossible for us and that was just like the biggest shock ever. So they've given you the term azospermia, basically. They've said that there's no sperm and that, that your husband is, is infertile. Now, I try to put the spotlight on male infertility issues a lot and, and 
the the experience I've had with what we went through, I mean, you know, my husband was told the issue was with him and we were fortunate that we were able to have a child, but still he, it was a massive blow. How how was your husband at that point dealing with, with that on top of everything else? Yeah, oh God, it was, it was really hard. And I think um, I'd always assumed or, or I'd been assuming that the problem was going to be my side. Um, and that was, that was based really on the fact that I have incredibly painful periods. And um, a number of years ago, a doctor had suggested that it's possible I could have endometriosis. So I'd assumed that that's what our problem would be. And then when it came um, back that it was, you know, nothing, nothing like that, we, we weren't even getting that far. Um, it was a real shock. And from a husband, um, it, you know, it was just... He's such a strong um, guy and he's really athletic and to be told that, that that was what the problem was, I think was a real um, a real devastating blow on top of all the other loss that we were dealing with as well. There was sort of a loss of his identity. Um, and when we moved forwards through the test and were told that it was actually down to mild cystic fibrosis... Um, to be told at 38 that you have a chronic illness it is really tough. You know, we didn't know anything about this at all. We didn't even know cystic fibrosis was a disease that had a spectrum, so we didn't know it was even possible. And that's something that he has to live with. You know, every six months we now have to go to the cystic fibrosis clinic at our local hospital. They keep track of his health um, and take different tests or baseline things that they can use as he gets older because we have been told that this will affect him um, as he gets um, into sort of old age, it will become an issue. So for him, he's got a massive amount of things that, that we were dealing with at that time. And from a health point of view today, he's been in good health. He is in um, immaculate health. He has the, the sort of the form of cystic fibrosis that he has, like I said, it is incredibly mild. And the only thing that it, that it really presents is the infertility. But we have been told that when he does get older, things like chest infections can become quite serious and he might need to go into hospital. But at the moment, um, the, other than the infertility, there's nothing physically wrong with him at all. So as far as the, the cause, I mean, was it any, is it anything genetic that, they, that they've said from, from what they've found out? Yeah, so cystic fibrosis is a genetic disease. And um, there are a number of different um, types of mutation that, that your chromosome can have. Um, you, it is what they call a recessive disease. So there's quite a lot of people um, all around the world who are carriers, which means um, obviously you have two um, genes for, that you inherit, one off your mum and one off your dad, for everything. And... With cystic fibrosis, you can have a mutated version, but if you've got a good version, then you are just a carrier. So the, the disease itself doesn't present. Unfortunately for my husband, he inherited two mutated versions, one from his mum and one from his dad, which meant that his mum and dad were both carriers and, of course, would never be aware of that. Wow. So it's really unfortunate that, um, that that's how it's happened. And what they told us was he has... One mutation that is the full-blown version of the cystic fibrosis disease. So the, um, the version that involves um, physiotherapy on the back to remove mucus from the lungs and that has a life expectancy of about 30 years. 
And the other mutation that he inherited was a very mild mutation. So because it's a recessive gene, the worst version is, is hidden. It's the mild version that his body is presented. And thank goodness that that is the case. Um, Some light yeah. at the end of what is a dark yeah. tunnel. Okay. Yeah. So a huge amount to deal with, and and I'm I'm assuming that the the fertility side just got put to put to to one side for now. Yeah. Or did that make you think, no, hang on, we're going to defeat this? Where were you both mentally at that point? Um, it was difficult because with my brother's accident, we had to go through a court case, right. and that was really um quite stressful being face to face with the person that was driving the other car. And he had no explanation for why he was on the wrong side of the road. He just God. seemed to have forgotten that he wasn't in his home country. Um, that was really difficult. And I knew I'd read a lot about um, IVF. And I knew that if we went into treatment, I had to be relaxed and I had to be in a good place. And we talked about it and we just said, until the court case is over, I am not going to be in that position at all. It was also my intention during the court case to read in court a victim impact statement. And I knew that that was going to be quite nerve wracking. Um, and I thought heading into treatment around any of that time is, is just going to be a waste of time. So what we did, we did everything that we could to prepare us up to that point. So my husband had his surgical sperm retrieval um, and we got things like that done so that we were ready to go, but we didn't actually go ahead with any treatment until um, more than a year after my brother's accident, just just because we needed to give it the best chance. I think that's sensible. I think that's sensible. So <laughs> just explain to me about the, the sperm retrieval with him having the cystic fibrosis, because I wasn't sure whether you were going to then go into telling me that you went with the donor. So you're because you, we've got a number of cycles that I know we need to discuss, <laughs> but you've been using your husband's sperm. Yes. So um, the what the disease does is it has caused the um, the tube that would normally take the sperm from the testicles outside the body. It's called the vas deferens. Um, cystic fibrosis prevents that from developing. So basically, his sperm are are trapped inside his body and they have no way of coming out. Um, the hospital were fairly sure that that was what they were going to find his testosterone levels all his hormone levels were perfectly normal so it wasn't that he was sterile it was just literally that they were trapped and so they there couldn't... was sperm okay yes so uh, they didn't know that for sure until they did the surgical sperm retrieval but they were sort of 90 percent they'd see i suppose they'd seen cases like this before they'd looked at the hormone levels and they were 90 percent sure that the sperm would be there um, so he was put to sleep and um, he had the operation, the surgical sperm retrieval, and they said straight away that they found them easily. They were there. There was no problem at all. And they just um, aspirated some off and froze them for us. So in the end, although I'm sure the operation wasn't very nice and there might be blokes out there that um, can sympathize with my husband, having a scalpel to the testicles is not a nice procedure, not but he, he was asleep. Um, but yeah, he had to have stitches and things and he did have a couple of days to recover. But once that was done, we were confident then we had his sperm to use and um, we were in, you know, sort of the best position that we could be given the circumstances. And did you sense a light, uh, not a lightness, but did you send a little bit of relief from him that he felt yes. a, a bit of the burden had been lifted off his shoulders? Yes. 
Well, I have to tell you, and um, he'll probably kill me for saying this, <laughs> but <laughs> when he cause when he was coming round from the um, anaesthetic, now I know, um, you know, lots of people when they're coming around from anaesthetic, they talk rubbish because that's what it does to you. But he, um, we told him that they'd got the sperm and he took one look at me and slurred, knew the buggers were in there somewhere. Oh, bless him. And he was, he was pleased. Good. That yeah. Because that's a massive part. I mean, you know, you've just said how you knew that your mental state and you needed to be relaxed in order to go into treatment. But I think it's really important to talk about guys' welfare as well, mm. because you've both got to be feeling as positive as you can about this. And, and, and I know from our experience, you know, that my other half, who was a fitness professional at the time where we found out we needed to have ICSI, he felt so shit. And I know yeah. that really dampened, not that the experience is ever going to be a good thing of having fertility treatment, but I know it affected his positivity. And so hopefully that at least gave you more hope entering yeah. into it because you knew that you'd got, you were, you were doing it as, 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 as much you as you could considering yeah. the circumstances. That's right. And um, to be faced with decisions on donor at that stage, I don't know how we would have coped with that because we really needed something to go our way. You know, things had been really difficult. And the fact that the sperm were there, they got them out easily. They froze them. I think we both thought, OK, that is one thing that we don't have to deal with any more than we have. It's done. They've got them. They're there. They're OK. And we can kind of move on now. It was a big relief. Now... I want to try and move through the cycles. Um, not that I don't want to get a sense of how you were during them, but sadly, we've had from your timeline, I've seen two failed cycles where you had eggs and they fertilized, but it was at the implantation point that they failed. So I know about two of the cycles and I know from your blog that there's been four and I know that there's a possible fifth happening. So do you want to explain to me about cycle three and four? First of all, I'm interested to know the kind of time frame. So I've got April as the first in 2016 and September as the second. Yes. Um, there's only been three. So the other one was April 17. Right. And we're heading into a fourth in four weeks time. Okay. And have you stayed at the same clinic each time? No. Um, after the first cycle failed, we went back for our review meeting with the clinic thinking we were just booking in for the next cycle and they said they needed to test my AMH, which was a total shock. We didn't even know what that meant. Yeah. And they said, depending on how it comes back, depends on whether you can even have further treatment or not. So we were quite surprised at that because we didn't know that we could be refused, really, because we only got one uh, funded cycle on the NHS. So we were paying anyway. Yeah. Luckily, the AMH came back OK. They agreed to do us another cycle. Obviously, that failed. So we went back for our review meeting afterwards Again, um, we were just hoping to maybe talk about what else we could do, um, perhaps look at alternative like kind of add-ons, things like that. But actually, the conversation was nothing like that at all. We went in with our consultant and she basically said, because they estimated we had a less than 5% chance of success, they would no longer treat us. Even though we were self-funded, we would be paying, they would no longer treat us. Wow, I've never heard that before. I was told it was a moral policy and they have a moral policy not to treat anybody that they estimate has a less than 10% chance and they were estimating our chances at less than 5%. So we came out of that horrified, wow. like, oh my God, we can't even have treatment. We didn't know what to do. We didn't know where to turn. We didn't know that that was going to 
sort of happened. My AMH was okay. So we didn't know, um, you know, why they were really based, what they were basing it all on. But um, to them, they were basing it on the number of eggs that they retrieved from me and the quality of the embryos. Um, and they said that nothing could improve either of those things. So they wouldn't treat us. Um, so where did was, you turn for support at that point? Oh, that was a really dark time. We had we had a, a really kind of dark few weeks there, not knowing where to go or what to do. And, and who'd think, you told, friendship-wise or family? Um, close friends and close family, but not that many people at all. And the trouble is, if you've not been through infertility, the people you're telling can sympathise with you but they can't tell you what to do and they can't tell you where to go to get the answers from because they don't know any more than you know. So it's it's good to have that emotional support, but actually what we needed at that point in time was somebody to step in with some practical advice and say, okay, this is what you need to do next. Yeah. And we didn't really know where to get that from. Um, so what we did, we went to the fertility show in London and it was something I'd seen on a notice board in the hospital. Um, we Googled it. We had a look at it. There was going to be lots of clinics there. There was um, lots of seminars and talks. So we decided that we would go and see if we could talk to people about what our options were. We had um, Googled low ovarian reserve and poor responder, which were two of the things that were um sort of add into our problems and one clinic in particular kept coming up in internet searches as being kind of um more expert in those side of things and that was the lister in chelsea so we really wanted to go to the fertility show and speak to somebody there and see what they said which is what we did and um we spoke to one of the consultants from the lister and she was horrified that we'd been told that they wouldn't treat us um really horrified that's good she, to hear i mean and one yeah. thing one point that i just want to make here is is you know i take my hat off to you for taking that step back doing the research and asking the questions because when you're so overwhelmed like you were with that yeah. outcome to then just almost retreat into yourselves but you've said no let's go and do a bit more investigation and and, and firstly how did you feel walking into olympia into the show because that in itself I only went once I'd had a, a, a child. I, cu I couldn't really get my head around it whilst to kind of dwelling it all. It seemed a bit too overwhelming for me, but I found it a fascinating experience. How did you find it? Oh, my God. The first 45 minutes, <coughs> I think we literally, we walked around holding hands with our mouths open. We just kept looking at each other, and there's the amount of information that's there, the amount of clinics that are there, the, everything that's going on, we literally were just dumbfounded, I think, for the first 45 minutes until we stopped and we sat down and we said, right, we, we actually need to get our heads together. Otherwise, this is going to be a complete waste of time. We're here for kind of one thing. We had three or four clinics listed that we wanted to, to see and we had a couple of seminars we wanted to go to. And we just said, right, we need to focus on what we know we came here to do because you could actually just wander around this thing all day and be completely lost and overwhelmed by everything. Um, so, yeah, we found that initial walking through the doors was just um, massively overwhelming. To have it all in one place, it's almost like 
you've spent the day on Google, isn't it? And that you can just go, like you say, you had a plan, which I think is the best bit of advice if you're going to head to a show like this. Have yeah. have an objective in there. You had some clinics, like you say, there's, there's seminars with very specific areas that are being covered. And yes. I think to have just gone in there and wandered around, you would have just been bamboozled. So that was brilliant. So you had <laughs> your plan in mind. You had your conversations. Yeah. And I might be jumping ahead so tell me if I am because I read a blog post where you had a conversation with Zeta West um is that did you meet Zeta at the show or is that something later on no that was after um I was on a webinar with Zeta and I won a chance to speak to her on the phone so that was um literally a couple of months ago let's talk Um, about that in a sec because let's go back to the show because I just want to I just want to if because we could talk for ages but I just want to get a bit like a kind of outcome of of your experience then so you had your conversations with Ballista um and and I'm assuming some other clinics and and did that then help you in your decision of where to go for your next cycle definitely um the Lister put our details into their system and told us that we actually had a 15 percent chance of success not less than five so that made us feel better with their um with their system and their um, figures. And then they also talked to us about different drugs. Now we've asked our previous clinic about whether any other drugs would make any difference. And we were told, no, they were pretty much the same. But the Lister um, had said they would try something different. And, And I'm all for doing something different. I'm not somebody who can continually bang my head against the same brick wall. I have to feel like I'm doing something to change it, to make it better. Um, we spoke to some other clinics and um, there's another one in London in particular where we spoke to them about the drugs and they said they wouldn't change the drugs, they would just increase them again. Well, that was all we'd done. Between cycles one and two, the only difference was they'd increased the drugs and it hadn't made any difference to the outcome. And I sort of said this to this clinic and they said, oh no, we'll just increase you even more. And I came away, I said to my husband, you know, I don't think the answer is just whacking more chemicals in my body. It's clearly not working. So for us, that wasn't the route that we wanted to go down. If there was somebody who was saying they could do something different, then that was really what we wanted to do. Um, But on top of that, we also went to a seminar, which was led by the MD of Lister, Mr. Abdallah. And he was doing a seminar about lower varying reserve, which was what I was being told I had. When he explained the facts and the figures to do with it and what your FSH level should be and your AMH and all the different kind of um, levels of your hormones, it became clear to me that I don't have lower ovarian reserve because that's not what my blood tests are showing. Okay. I was quite confused. I don't respond well, but I, I also don't have the levels of hormones that he was talking about. Mine are in the normal ranges. So we came away confused, but hopeful that maybe something was going on that was not normal. And we wrote to the Lister and I said that I had heard Mr. Abdullah speak and I wondered if it was possible to have a consultation with him. And um, luckily they said yes. And he reviewed our files. Um, And the first thing he said to me was, you're a little bit of an enigma, aren't you? And that's that's really not what you want somebody to say about your um, your blood test. That's results. kind of a compliment, but I don't really want to be that strange. <laughs> no. 
Um, he said that he couldn't explain it. My AMH and my FSH are normal, but I don't respond very well to the drugs that are being used. I don't respond well at all. And he said he, um, he couldn't explain why, but it isn't normal. It seems like my ovaries were very stubborn. My husband thinks that's right because the rest of me is stubborn. So why would my <laughs> be any different? I love male logic. <laughs> it's so black and white. Okay. But what, um, what Mr. Abdallah did was give us a completely different protocol, a completely different set of drugs and said, basically, come here, do this and see if it makes any difference. And we will, of course, be back with Jessica after this message from my sponsors. The Fertility Podcast is supported by Ovusense. If you're trying to monitor your cycle and finding it overwhelming, Ovusense is the only ovulation monitor on the market that is a class two medical device. It has a vaginal sensor and app and fits like a tampon, so it's really easy to use and comfortable to wear. Now you use it at night while you sleep and then in the morning, you simply remove, wash it and download your data to see your cycle pattern. Now Ovusense has proven comfortable for women in over 10,000 cycles of use and can predict ovulation up to a day in advance and can confirm it with 99% accuracy. To find out more, visit ovisense.com. The Fertility Podcast is also supported by IVF Matters, the UK's first online fertility clinic where you can order tests delivered to your door, have scans at multiple locations and speak to consultants in the comfort of your own home. It's a truly unique way to experience your fertility journey and you can find out more at ivfmatters.co.uk. Now, just to explain to people listening outside the UK that we're talking about a clinic in London. Jessica, I'm right in saying that you're bet you're from Leicester. Yes. So as a commute, we're talking about two hours. More than that. More than that. So for anybody listening um, outside the UK, you'll know that distance to your clinic is, is a really kind of important factor in your decision. So how did you get your head around that? Or did they have a satellite clinic that you could go to? Do you know what? I didn't really think about it. Right. I was so convinced that the Lister was where we should be that I didn't care yep. really about the distance. And, you know, it's like you'll do anything if you think it's going to work. The reality was when I was going up there for a scan and a blood test, which maximum takes, what, 20 minutes? Sometimes, depending on traffic, it could be a seven or eight hour round trip. If we got stuck on the M1 or the M6 coming past Coventry. And just to explain for people outside the UK, two notoriously awful motorways with roadworks and accidents so you're you're more likely than not going to get stuck on them yeah and it was horrendous it was an entire day out for a scan and a blood test and it was exhausting and we just we hadn't uh, we hadn't thought that through really so your advice at that point to somebody else listening you found the clinic that you think is going to be the the be all and end all i mean I suppose in an ideal situation, if money was no object, you could have got an Airbnb and stayed in London over the period of time. But even then, you've got to work, haven't you? Had you stopped working by this point? Um, what we did, we worked up until about, about a week before egg collection. And then we both took annual leave and we did go up to London and stay in a hotel. But even then, the hotel wasn't really close enough. What we hadn't realised was it was still an hour to get into the clinic in Chelsea because of where we had to go down the M4 and the Chelsea embankment, it's like literally bumper to bumper crawling traffic. So it still took us an hour every day to get into the clinic. Um, so we spent all this money on a hotel um, and we were away from work and we were thinking that this was going to be the key to the success. And then we were sort of 
um, stuck in traffic trying to still get to the clinic. At one point, we were late for an appointment and I ran about half a mile up the Chelsea embankment to get to the hospital because we just couldn't get a car through. So it really was not the stress-free kind of holiday we were thinking it was going to be. And the outcome of that cycle, sadly, it didn't work. It didn't. I did respond better. So I'd never had any more than two eggs collected prior to that. And on that cycle, I had eight collected. So we were absolutely overjoyed when we were told that we had eight collected. We thought this was it. This was going to be the one. We were going to have a fresh transfer and maybe something to freeze as well. We were just so excited. And then you wait for that call the next day to tell you what's happened to them. And we got the call to say that six weren't mature and couldn't be used. And out of the two remaining, only one had fertilised. So we were just crushed that we'd gone from the dizzy heights of eight eggs collected back down to, once again, only one fertilised. And we couldn't believe we'd done all of what we'd done and we were no better off. And at this point, again, where are you going for support? I mean, it sounds like the two of you are solid and you're obviously being able to speak about it openly and frankly, but were you getting any counselling? Um, yes, we'd had um, some... I'd had some counselling after I'd lost my brother, so I'd continued with that. And at this point, I'd actually started writing my blog. So we got masses of support from everybody who was reading my blog. And that just made the third cycle um, easier to deal with, I think. Okay, so, I mean, your blog, I'm going to put all the details on the show notes, as I as I always do. And, I mean, it's a real work of art. You talked about your organisation. There's so many different elements to it. You've had, obviously, a number of cycles, as we've just talked about. But it's a very concise and informative read. So do please go and have a look at Jessica's blog. So let's talk about cycle four, which is what you just said. We're talking at uh, almost the end of October in 2017, if anybody's listening to this in the future. And Jessica, you're talking about your fourth cycle happening end of November 2017. Is that right? That's right. Yes. At the Lister? No, it's not. Right. So you've changed clinics. Oh, hang on. We've missed a step. Because I want to find out now about the conversation with Zita West. Because I read on a blog that you had a conversation with Zita West. Now, Zita was somebody who I spoke to. She's one of the first experts I spoke to on this podcast, episode four. And she invited me to her clinic and I interviewed her and she was a a lovely lady. And uh, I was really pleased when I saw that you'd had a conversation with her. So tell me about that. Yeah. Oh, gosh, it was amazing. We it was all planned in. So I knew what time it was happening. And my phone rang and I said hello. And this voice uh, said back to me, hello, Jessica, it's Zeta West. And honest, I was just like, oh, my God, it's a celebrity. I'm talking to a celebrity. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So you'd read her book, I'm assuming. Yes. And uh, yeah, I was really interested in her clinic. I'm massively interested in her whole holistic approach. I think it's a revolutionary way to deal with it. And, and I really... Um, have trouble with the clinics that just think the only thing you need to do for treatment is shove needles in your stomach and that you know that's it what she talks about everything you know your whole body experience is something that I really um, resonate with I think that's really important and I think it, it has had a massive effect 
on our treatment, just like where I am mentally and where I am physically. So that was really what I wanted to get some time to speak to her about. And it was a lovely phone call. She was really nice. She gave me some tips. We discussed the stuff that I, I already do, the meditation and things like that. And she was really supportive. Um, she asked me a couple of questions about my AMH levels and um, the different responses I'd had to drugs and things. And um, what we'd had from our previous clinic, when they told us that they wouldn't treat us again, they also told us that we should be moving on to donor embryos within 12 months. And I've always had that hanging over my head. And so I did talk to Zeta about that. And um, she couldn't believe that they told us that. And she said that there was absolutely no way we needed to think about donor embryos yet. Um, she said if I was her patient, she would be looking at doing another cycle similar drugs to we'd had at the Lister because they'd given a much better result but working on the holistic side of it to try and improve my egg quality and reduce my stress and anxiety and those types of things and actually she wasn't the only consultant that said um, telling us to move on to donor embryos within 12 months was a ridiculous statement because both the consultant at the Lister when we went for our review meeting there and our new consultant at Coventry have also said the same things and that there's absolutely no need for us to move on just yet. So you're a perfect example of getting more opinions, taking the time out, even though I know we all feel pressured when we're on this journey to get the outcome that we so desperately want. But you've taken stock, you've asked for advice, which I think is the first key piece of advice I want to share. And again, I'm sorry that this is a UK focus, but there is an opportunity for you to give clinic feedback through the new HFEA website, which um, hopefully you know about, and, and if not, something to, to consider from you know sharing your previous experience. And I urge you, wherever you are listening to this podcast, if you haven't had a particularly good experience with your clinic, do look to see if you can give feedback because it's the only way these clinics can improve by patient feedback. So rant over. Jessica, just back to where you're at mentally because I know that you have spoken about the pressure that you have on yourself to continue your family line with the, the loss of your brother. And I'm, I'm assuming that with all of this focus, hopefully now on your well-being and your mental state and, and trying to de-stress in what is such a pressurised, unfortunately pressurised situation, are you feeling that you're able to release that pressure a little bit because you are doing everything, it seems like, to, to make the right decisions and to make this happen? And hopefully you're in allowing yourself to not feel so pressured about that. Yeah, definitely. Um, having Zeta say that we didn't need to move on to donor embryos was the real the first point at which I thought that I kind of had that hanging over my head. And that was the first point at which I let go of that and said, OK, do you know what? I don't need to worry about that yet. Three people have said that now. So we don't need to fear time ticking. We can actually take more time to think about what we're doing. Um, and I think learning to meditate and I've been doing a little tiny bit of yoga, literally from YouTube, 10 minutes in the morning. Nothing. I'm not going to classes or anything like that, but just some time to breathe and and connect with my body that's been really important for reducing my stress levels and the pressure that I put myself under the big realization for me was um and this is why this cycle I think is going to be different I've headed into each cycle with the mindset of this absolutely has to work because I can't do this again and that's what I keep telling myself that's why I'm talking to myself this has to work because I can't do it again I can't go through this again I cannot you know withstand these injections I can't withstand the disappointment again it has to work 
And what I realised after the third cycle was actually that I can do this. And I have done. I've done it three times now. I'm planning to do it a fourth. And I absolutely know that if I needed to, I would do this a fifth and a sixth and possibly even a seventh time. So for me, it's time to stop talking to myself like that and stop putting all that pressure on me to say it has to work so I can't do it again. It doesn't have to work because I can't do it again. I would very much like it to work. But if it doesn't, I can do it again because I already have. Brilliant brilliant shift it's just a simple shift of language and you've completely almost changed your mindset and I'm just curious to know where we are with your husband's sperm without sounding too personal <laughs> all over the country now are they is that what's happening they're kind of being couriered to different clinics yeah basically every right. time move clinic we have to get them couriered across and how how are you about that because that's something that I am looking to do an episode on because I did meet some IVF couriers and I've moved in the last year and my frozen embryos are in one place and I was looking into moving them to a, a, a nearer clinic to me and the whole idea of maybe affecting anything by moving them really kind of got me how have you felt about that I mean I know they're frozen and I know these people know what they're doing but has, has that been something that you're worried about we've only ever moved sperm and I don't know why but I feel differently about moving sperm to moving embryos I'm not sure how I would feel about moving embryos it's a tricky one isn't it I suppose it's because you think there's more sp- I mean have you got quite have you got a, a good supply of sperm from from the operation then yes we've got eight vials okay yeah we've got quite a lot and got plenty um, of sperm okay we've always used the same courier and he's really good he's really professional we're quite happy with that but like I say I'm I'm not sure how I'd feel if I had to move embryos I'm yeah it's definitely something if you're listening and it's something that you've experienced I'd love to know how you've managed that because it's just another worry Jessica look we are going to leave it there and I would like us to keep in touch and 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 talk again and who knows I think your mindset is exactly how it should be I love that you're doing your meditation your yoga and I'm going to share on the show notes for this as well um, some episodes I've done about fertility yoga because I'm a massive fan and believer of all the holistic side of fertility treatment I mean I I know I'm a fortunate person that it worked first time, but I did all of that stuff. Um, I, I worked so hard, I feel, on my mental state and my visualization and my meditation. And, and I, I, who knows? I know that there's still evidence um, to say it doesn't have an effect, but I know that there's still a big movement now to say that, you know, this type of holistic approach does have a lot of benefit. And I'm assuming from the diet and that side, you're doing everything you can and you, you're being as healthy as you can absolutely yeah just you get to a point where you just will throw everything including the kitchen sink at it I think and and where are you as far as your friendships because you know we talked about the people that they just don't get it and and it does distance you unfortunately from those often closest to you because if they don't get it they don't doesn't you know they can be your best friend in the world and and I know my best friend as much as she wanted to be there for me I, I, she couldn't really whereas another best friend could be because she'd been through it and unfortunately it, it puts those 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 barriers I suppose in your friendships how are you feeling about that I'm really lucky in the one sense that um my best friend as soon as she knew what we were going to be going through she started uh, she joined some online forums and she started reading um herself about infertility and how it affects because she really wanted to understand um although she can't understand exactly what we're going through she wanted to understand in what way she could support us um and we've been really tested um just after christmas this year she found out she was pregnant and um she gave birth six weeks ago so 
that's been a real um, test of our friendship. But luckily, and um, I have wrote a piece for Fertility Smarts on this to show people that you can get through it. It's hard. It's hard to have a best friend that's pregnant when you're um, on an infertility journey. But you just have to both be massively aware of what the other one's going through and um, and just try to be sensitive in what you're doing. And, and we've worked really hard to keep our friendship. It would have been really easy to let it go, mm. just let it slip away, you know, let us drift apart. And that would have been the easiest answer, to be honest. But we've been friends since we were three. And she stuck by me through losing my brother. She came to see me every day for two months. And I couldn't lose her. So we did work really hard to make sure we maintained that friendship and, and I know I'm really lucky in that sense that Definitely. I have somebody who understands. Well do send me that link and we'll put it in the show notes as well because I think people would be really interested to read that article that you've written and what an amazing person she is and you are. So Jessica thank you. Um, we've, we've had a lengthy chat so I appreciate you sharing all that you have and I know there's a lot more and like I say do go and have a look at Jessica's blog because she's been through a heck of a lot um, and the journey continues and I think that if, if there's any aspect of what she's been through that you can relate to then hopefully there's some answers there. And I know you've got your Facebook group, which is is quite reasonably based in the UK. It's a, a Leicester-based Facebook group. But are the details on your blog for that? Yes. All right. Yeah. Well, again, we'll make we'll make it all really clear in the show notes. But good luck. Everything is crossed. And I'm sure we will be speaking again, Jessica. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. So I wish Jessica the best of luck with whatever happens next on her journey. So much going on and as you've heard, a lot to take on board. And we're all affected in so many very different ways with our fertility journeys and I'm always really keen to hear about yours. So you can email me natalie at thefertilitypodcast.com. Now to find out details of Jessica, uh, the show notes for this episode are thefertilitypodcast.com forward slash Jessica. And it's always amazing to hear from you. You can follow me by joining up with my newsletter at the website. You can follow me on social media at Fertility Poddy on Twitter and Instagram. And the Fertility Podcast Facebook page is there for you to join in. Thank you as always for your support. Thanks for listening. And until the next time. 